Welcome to Prehistory. I'm recording this intro on Sunday, the 14th of March. I finally posted this podcast on my rarely used Instagram and Facebook account. And I would like to know where Gen Z gets their boldness from because I felt way too embarrassed advertising my own content. Good thing I'm not in sales. Anyway, I'm eagerly awaiting the COVID vaccine and even though peasants like me won't get it until May, if we're really lucky, I'm so happy that we're seeing a pinprick of light at the end of a nasty tunnel. And I am going to dedicate this episode to all the healthcare workers out there. You guys are awesome. And let's talk about Mary Seacole, a Jamaica nurse whose fame and recognition rivaled Florence Nightingale during her prime, but unlike Nightingale, was forgotten until pretty recently. Mary Jane Grant was born in Kingston, 1805, almost 30 years before slaves were emancipated. Her father was a white Scottish soldier stationed in Jamaica. Her mother, a mixed free woman, ran a boarding house called Blundell Hall for officers in Kingston. Mary learned a lot of her medical knowledge from her mother, who treated ill residents with traditional herbal medicine. As a very young child, Mary started practicing her healing skills on her doll, name a disease and the poor doll had it and Mary cured it. She then moved up to unfortunate cats and dogs, and then even experimented on herself. By about 12 years old, Mary was helping her mom with running the board house and tending to human patients. Mary herself suffered from a case of wanderlust. As she grew into adulthood, she recounted tracing the roots of England over and over on an old map, dreaming of being on a ship and seeing the blue hills of Jamaica fade into the distance. Mm romantic. She was able to get her wish. She visited England for the first time as a teenager and took in the London scene. She stayed for about a year, went back to Jamaica, and then went back to London again, but this time with local preserves to sell. While traveling back home to Kingston again, the passengers and crew celebrated Christmas on the ship. And maybe someone parted a little too hard because a fire broke out in the hold and they only managed to put it out when another ship pulled up to help. So thankfully, we didn't lose Mary there because she has a lot of history to make. Now that Mary got a little tasty taste of travel, she couldn't be tied down, and she used it to hustle. Mm Mm-hmm, hustle girl. She traveled to the Bahamas, to Haiti, to Cuba, bringing back items to sell in Jamaica. She stated in her autobiography that she had often heard the term lazy creole applied to her people, but she didn't know what it meant to be lazy. It's okay, Mary. The same people calling your fellow Jamaicans lazy are the ones who made others do hard labor with no pay on their plantations. What's that called again? Slavery? Hmm. I'm sure the term will come back to me. Anyway, back in Kingston, Mary continued working in her mother's inn until she got what she described as a timid marriage proposal from a Mr. Edwin Seacole. That sounds kind of cute. Mary accepted and they moved to Black River St. Elizabeth and set up a shop. Edwin's health was very delicate and her nursing and attention kept him alive longer than the doctors expected. Their shop failed though and they moved back to her mother's house. There was a great fire in Kingston in 1843 that burnt down a tenth of the city, including Mary's home. The next year, Edwin died and Mary also lost her mother. She was only 31 years old and already a widow and an orphan. Mary rebuilt Blundell Hall bit by bit, but by now she had street cred as a skilled nurse and doctor, 
and she often took in ill officers and their wives from military bases in Newcastle and Upper Camp. In 1850, there was a wave of cholera in Jamaica, and while Mary did her best to treat her patients, she also had her eye on a new adventure. Mary's brother had set up a hotel and shopping cruises Panama that year to cater to travelers heading to California during the gold rush. This was before the Panama Canal was built, pin that topic for a future episode, but it was still the best way for Americans and other prospectors to go west. Sailing around South America was dangerous and inefficient, and traveling overland through the Midwest was practically suicide. Mary left her house in a cousin's care and went to join her brother. She had that wanderlust again. The boat ride to Panama was a miserable experience for Mary, and the accommodations at her brother's hotel wasn't much better. In fact, based on her description, hotels seemed a generous term for what was an overcrowded, dirty hut. Mary was cold, wretched and hungry by the time her brother picked her up from the port, and he had a very shrug, eh, what can you expect me to do about it attitude. He fed his sister, but wasn't much help with getting her a bed, since 110% of the rooms had been taken up at his hotel, including his own private quarters. Too tired to deal with her brother, he sounds useless anyway, she slept under the hotel's dining table and used the tablecloth to make a curtain around the legs. Her brother and his servants slept on top of the table. I bet he didn't even find her a mattress. What kind of brother is this? This might have been the one time that Mary regretted traveling. She was missing Kingston already. But man, Mary just could not get away from cholera. There was a huge cholera outbreak in Panama in 1852. Mary treated many as household after household was hit with cholera. The experience was so horrific she would later compare it with the war in Crimea. She saved many and lost many as she learned from each case. Mary herself caught it towards the tail end of the outbreak. The community relied on her as a medicine woman and their best bet against cholera. So while recovering, they did their best to help the woman who had done so much to help them. For a while, Mary ran her own hotel, modeling it after her brother's, but, you know, cleaner. Mary eventually headed back to Jamaica in 1853 and left her hotel to her brother. And she was welcomed home to a yellow fever epidemic. She supervised nursing services at the British Army headquarters at Upper Camp and traded medical knowledge with military doctors and surgeons. On the other side of the world, a war was brewing between Russia and the Ottoman Empire, aka Turkey, over control of the Crimean Peninsula. Crimea was under the control of the Ottoman Empire and was a key access trade route for Europe. Britain and France backed the Ottoman Empire's claims in the war. It was in Britain's best business interest to do so, and France just had bad blood with Russia, so war. Regiments of officers Mary knew left for England as the conflict grew. In the autumn of 1854, Mary also headed to London. At first, Mary did not apply to the advertisements in the local newspapers calling for hospital nurses to go to Crimea, but she became increasingly inclined to join her officer friends, many of whom she regarded as sons. She made several attempts to sign up at government offices and with Florence Nightingale's team, but was turned down each time. Her race was likely a factor, but to be 
fear. She never received formal training, had no hospital experience, and passed and was past the typical age for nursing. She was about 48 if you lost track. She did, however, have references and a ton of practical experience with the same diseases the army was facing in Crimea, namely our good friend, cholera. Still, no one would take her up on her repeated attempts to sign up, and she was disappointed but not turned off. Her heart was set on going to Crimea. She started a business with a relative of her late husband and saved up until she could pay her own way to Turkey in 1855. Along the 8,000-mile journey, she met old friends and met new ones in the army and marveled at the beautiful countries she passed through. Mary worked on setting up her convalescing hotel slash restaurant for officers in Crimea. While that project was underway, she stayed on a ship and served refreshments to officers on the wharf. She would sometimes go out onto the battlefield to give assistance to the wounded and dying. She became known as Mother Seacole to the young soldiers. Florence Nightingale was in Crimea doing the same. Mary had tried to join Nightingale's team again when in Balaclava, but was told that their staff was full. Newspapers call them each the mother of the army, which is nice, but they also call Florence Nightingale the lady with the lamp, and Mary got the title, the Crayle with the tea mug. And they ruined it. Way to ruin gratitude, guys. Mary's hotel was situated much closer to the front lines than Florence Nightingale's famous hospital. Even after the war, when peace treaties were hashed out, her restaurant was full of customers and life. She lent the soldiers her colorful hats and dresses so they could play women in theatrical performances they put on to pastime. That sounds adorable. The peace treaty was signed in 1856 and the troops rolled out. Mary and her relative had expected the peace negotiations to go on longer than they did. And they had recently bought expensive supplies that now they couldn't sell. They had to practically give away their stock for a fraction of their worth to the Russians. In a moment of frustration, Mary smashed their cases of wine. She admitted it might have been wrong. You're right, it was wrong. But she rather not give it to their enemies since she couldn't give it to her own people. What a waste of wine. Alright, so back in England, she tried to set up a shop again, but it didn't do well. She was struggling with poor health and heavy debt, but her friends in London put together a huge fundraising gala to help the woman who had helped them in the war. She also wrote her autobiography, The Wonderful Adventures of Mrs. Seacole in Many Lands, which became a bestseller. I love those old books with the enormous titles. The book was one of the first travel memoirs published by a black woman. Even the royals, Queen Victoria, her son, and his brother set up a sequel fund to provide Mary with a comfortable income for the rest of her life. Mary died of a stroke on May 14th, 1881. She was 76. She's buried in St. Mary's Catholic Church in London. Her headstone reads, Here lies a notable nurse who cared for the sick and wounded in the West Indies, in Panama, and on the battlefield of Crimea. Blondell Hall, her mother's inn and the home she had rebuilt after the Great Fire, 
was destroyed in the 1907 Kingston earthquake. It had most recently been used as a part of the post office. During her lifetime, Mary had been as famous as Nightingale, but she was lost to history until fairly recently. The Lignum Vitae Club in 1973 re-consecrated her final resting place, which had also been lost to time, and the Nursing Association of Jamaica brought life back to her name. In 1990, the Jamaican government awarded her the Order of Merit, the third highest honor posthumously, and in seven. In 2004, Mary was voted the greatest Black Briton, and in 2016, a statue of her was unveiled at St. Thomas's Hospital in London. In 2002, a portrait of Mary was discovered at a small auction in, I am going to butcher this, in Shipston on Store, England, where it was bought by an art dealer. In it, Mary was wearing a red neckerchief symbolizing her Jamaican roots, and three medals she was awarded for her service. The British Crimean Medal, the Turkish Majidi, and the French Legion of Honor. The portrait is on show at the Crimean Room at the National Portrait Gallery. So some final thoughts on Mary's story um, that I did not find a good place to put it into the middle. Mary's story showed her to be nurturing and intelligent, but she was also complex, she was human, a woman of her time and both a beneficiary of colorism and a sufferer of racism. She rarely identified as black in her autobiography unless struck by deep moments of insecurity, like when she was repeatedly turned down in England to join the war efforts. She often called her own coloring yellow, um, identified as Creole, and she considered herself a British citizen through and through. Although Jamaican was still a part of the British Empire, so she was a British citizen, technically. Maybe it was her high coloring, but as awful as the British colonizers were, whenever she experienced blatant racism, she always compared it to Americans being the most prejudiced. There was one incident on her journey back from Panama to Jamaica that was scary, where she tried to take an American boat and was shocked by the hostility and threats she and her servant girl, also black of course, faced from the white passenger. One of the white children spat in the little servant girl's face. One of the white children even spat in the little servant girl's face. Mary was forced to have their luggage removed and wait for the British boat. I'm just grateful it didn't get violent, especially if she had planted her feet to stay on board because the way she described them crowding around her and threatening her was terrifying and hard to read. She was used to being treated with relative respect from British soldiers who spent a lot of time in Jamaica, many of whom were grateful for her motherly attentions. So the reason why I bring up the above points is that in 1866, Mary attended a meeting at Exeter Hall in London on the aftermath of the Morant Bay Rebellion in Jamaica, which had been brutally repressed by the governor. The governor and soldiers had faced serious backlash and censorship on their horrific overkill, and I use the word overkill literally, in repressing the rebellion. Or at least they did face some backlash before the establishment came to their rescue and did some damage control in the press. Exeter Hall was the common meeting spot for liberal groups who supported anti-slavery and women's rights. 
when asked at the meeting to speak on the matter, as a native of Jamaica, and if she... When asked at the meeting to speak on the matter as a native of Jamaica and if she knew George William Gordon, a mayor player in the uprising, and later to become one of Jamaica's national heroes, Mary got on stage and said that, yes, I had known George William Gordon from his childhood and he was as great a hypocrite and villain who ever lived. That comment earned her booze from the crowd, but she then followed up with, you can groan and hiss as much as you like. But I have told you the truth, and I am not ashamed at telling it. And as she took her seat, said, These people here know nothing of Jamaica. Based on her life and her comments, she did regret the loss of life during the rebellion, but also had a lot of sympathy for the soldiers, who were her sons, her boys, and to the British, who she was loyal to. So yeah, people are complicated. But that shouldn't take away from all the great that she did and all the joy and care that she showed to others in need. Thank you for listening as always. I really should standardize my exit one of these days. Every other week I think, oh, I should have signed off with this or that piece of information that might be important for listeners to know. Trying so hard not to wing this, guys, but it's too late. I'm winging it. Thank you to all the healthcare workers again who guided us through the worst of 2020 to 2021. We appreciate all the hard work you do and the risk you take keeping the world alive. Please share, subscribe, and review this podcast on whatever platform you listen to, and I'll be here next Monday.